Hello and welcome to the E5 podcast in this, for God's sake, hang on, right, hang on, hang on. And deep breath, feel the love, darling, feel the love, grace the energy, play with your crystals, darling, come on. <laughs> right, three, two, one. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the E5 podcast. I'm joined here today by Paul Meenan and we're going to be talking about electricians working on fire alarm systems. We're going to be talking about all sorts of controversial topics, who does what and who goes where. So how are you doing, Paul? I'm good, mate. I'm good. These podcasts are uh, an interesting way of uh, communicating and having chats. It's really weird, really, because we kind of have these chats all the time. But now we're recording them, so it's like, oh, okay. So it's quite a, it's a bit of a, a a learning curve, I suppose, for us all. But a good one, I suppose. But yes, this is an interesting topic. There's a lot of debate in the industry about it. It's something that I really enjoy talking about because, as much as I'm an electrician, I say I'm a fire alarm engineer as well. Uh, my mm. background is, you know, I've done electrical apprenticeship, and I got into fire alarms. How a lot of people got into fire alarms, where I was kind of pushed by the company I was working for. They got some contracts in, they got some jobs and they said, you're an electrician, you can wire some cable, go and do that. And I actually worked for a company that had two divisions, an alarm side and electrical side. And in a way, the fire alarm stuff kind of crossed over. So it worked quite well. And I just really sort of enjoyed it. And it got bigger and bigger. Well, I'm not afraid to say that I am non-competent uh, as far as fire alarm engineering goes. Uh, the last time I touched a fire alarm panel, I was working on the tools at London Underground and we were working on tech, Kentech equipment. We were putting in pyros, uh, which not many people do anymore. Um, and yes, we were wiring control interfaces for external IOs and all that sort of stuff. But I, it's been so many years and the technology is moving on um for me now i actually specify i've i've put in a couple of wireless ones um and i'm looking at renewing quite a lot of fire alarms at the moment on the railway that i work on but um i've more moved away from fire alarms into the fire engineering side of it so fire is quite a unique discipline because a lot of electricians will train and upskill to develop their competence in fire alarms but what I did was I went away and I did a Nebosch fire, which anybody wants to do a great safety course. The Nebosch fire certificate is fantastic, which then immediately takes you into the realm of fire safety, uh, which applies to existing buildings. But fire engineering is that theoretical approach if you were developing and designing new infrastructure and creates a lot of rules and principles that you must follow when complying with building regulation part B or BS 999. However, today we're just talking about 5839 sparks and alarms. So, Paul, there's one little topic that keeps coming up. People always come to me and say whose responsibility it is. And it's where mains meets the fire alarm panel and equipment. Yep. Which it wouldn't work without it. So it's uh, it's it's not a new thing, is it really? It's just fire alarms have run off mains for many, many years. But it's that interpretation and the line of demarcation between mains and fire alarm isn't it really that seems to really lit a fire especially on linkedin there's been quite a lot of healthy debates recently about that it is and it's something that i can fully understand why there's a lot of debate about because when bs5839 part one 2017 changed it had a, a little amendment on um one of the regulations 25.2 Mm -hmm. about the isolators or you know the supplies to the fire alarm panel so what it what it says now and it, it actually refers to the electricity at work regulation so they used to have to be double pole they don't need to be anymore but if i just read out the regulation it says to facilitate local isolation during maintenance suitable means should be provided for local isolation of the low voltage supply circuit that serves the power supply and control equipment and then it says there's a note Safe isolation is required under the terms of the Electricity at Work Regulations 1989. The previous version of this standard recommended double part isolation. This is no longer specifically recommended as under the Electricity at Work Regulations 1989. 
safe isolation requires verification that isolation has been successful. Mm -hmm. Trouble is, that's never changed since 1989. <laughs> I know. So it's, it, you, I, I'm going I'm to openly say this to the people who wrote 5839. Well done. Congratulations for developing and um, updating that standard. Well done for catching up with something that's been around since 1989. Um, I, I kind of, I don't see a massive issue with that, but yet there is a lot of debate because to facilitate local isolation during maintenance, absolutely you should always on a fixed piece of plant. If you can have local maintenance, you should have. It's a lot more effective and safer for the guy doing the maintenance. The suitable means, um, again, quoting 25.2 recommendation uh, C, um, should be provided for local isolation that serves it. Now, I know everybody used to have a double pole isolator, but nowadays people worry about batteries and floating voltages because obviously if you break the neutral and the line conductor, which would be the disconnection of all sources of energy, you've still got a source of energy within the panel. So even if you put a double pole isolator in, you're not actually isolating from all sources of electrical energy. Hence, we'll find, I think, and, and Dan, you can tell me if I'm wrong here, that everybody seems to just go now with the fused spur, non-switch, just the fused spur now. That's what I'm seeing in a lot of places. I used to use the old rotary isolators locked in the on position, um, but that was on railways, um, IP65 ones. But now everybody's going for these just single pole, unswitched fused spurs. Um, yeah, more more or less, there's different versions out there because they need to be read or labelled fire alarm and make it clear that it's the fire alarm panel. So right, there's there's all sorts out there, and even there's um, a lot of a lot of um, accessories I've seen out there are actually they're not double pole um, and they've been used for many years, even though um, in previous standards it should have been. I don't. I don't see. An, I don't see the, a massive issue of single or double power. I mean, I know a lot of even manufacturers of uh, circuit breakers are, are, are saying it's great that they've got double pole, uh, which it, it it really is. But you should only really use double pole if you're considering what's connected downstream, because if you have, I mean, I've actually seen this, and this is genuinely a true story. I once saw a thirty kVA UPS be supplied from a four pole isolator switch, which meant when you isolated it. It was generating two thirty volt mains with no neutral connection, so the whole thing was floating. Yeah. And that was a designer had done that and not realised the recommendations of chapter fifty four or fifty five. I think it was in the regs. I think it was fifty five generators and other things. Um, but just just on that electricity at work regulations clause, if I if I tell you regulation four, it's entitled systems, work activities, and protective equipment, and um, this is pretty much a statutory. Uh, with ex with the exception of part two. So there's four parts, one, two, three, and four. And, it, and I'll just read them out. Part one, all systems shall, shall means mandatory, be constructed as to prevent so far as reasonably practicable danger. The next one, as may be necessary to prevent danger, all systems may, shall be maintained to prevent so far as reasonably practicable such danger. So if you can foresee it, do something about it, unless it's horrendously cost uh, pro prohibitive but on LV you haven't got that defence um, every work activity including operations use and maintenance so this is fire alarms um, of a system and work near a system shall be carried out in a manner so as not to give rise so far as reasonably practicable to danger so if you had a non-qualified electrical operative working on or near low voltage live exposed terminals um, then you could possibly be giving rise to danger. Part four of regulation four, any equipment provided under these regulations for the purpose of a protecting persons at work on or near electrical equipment shall be suitable for the use of which is provided, be maintained in a suitable uh, for that use and be properly used. So regulation four really does make you think about what are you doing how are you doing it who is doing it who is working on or near now the 25.2 recommendation for power supplies um that is kind of inferring to regulation 12 of the electricity at work regulations which is called means for cutting off the supply and for isolation and it basically says subject to paragraph three where necessary to prevent danger suitable means 
Suitable means can be defined by the designer or the owner or the competent persons, I would assume. Including where appropriate, ident method of identifying circuits shall be available for, and then it's A and B, cutting off the supply of electrical energy to any equipment, and B, the isolation of any electrical equipment. Now, one thing as well is worth just chucking in. Isolation can be electrical and mechanical, and on fire alarms, there's obviously the isolation supply coming in, but then also that source of energy, batteries. Now, it says in note two, in paragraph one, isolation means, and this is something that electricians should be able to quote off the top of their head, the disconnection and separation of the electrical equipment from every source of electrical energy in such a way that this disconnection and separation is secure. If you use a single pole isolator or a non-switch fuse spur, you are technically not disconnecting uh, that equipment from every source of electrical energy. So when it infers that, um, as recommended under electricity at work regulations, my professional engineering judgment is it's requiring you to realize that we know fire alarms have a battery system, that single pole will disconnect the line conductor, the neutral conductor will still allow a current flow, but safe working procedures will then require a competent person to go in and disconnect the battery supplies and then check at the at the uh, points of connection that there is no electrical energy left so they can issue a permit to work to people to work on or near that equipment. But that's this, where it all goes wrong. This is where it goes wrong because most, I say most, a lot of fire alarm engineers, they don't have such training on safe isolations they would require somebody who does so in some sense in some cases it might need more than one person and the problem is in the real world that doesn't happen paul as we know if someone's changing over a panel or working on a panel we know that alarm engineers do often work on low voltage systems so do you think there's a complacency or is oh. it the fact that the, the the modules of the fire alarm courses may um, i'll use a dave term they, they they give a piecemeal effort in providing some knowledge on electrical isolation and expect the guy to be remembering it six months after he's done the course uh, i don't i don't remember any fire alarm training i've done and i've done quite a lot you have that, yeah that I've done quite a lot that teaches you about or really really goes into about um about mains um low voltage it's all it's all the obviously the um the actual fire alarm side however even the main supply to any fire alarm panel equipment or any part of the the system does form part of the fire alarm it forms part of it it's the critical path um, because obviously it's providing power to it so it's a bit of a controversial um topic really because w where do you stand and mm. so the only thing i can say is i mean there's this there's, there's a few things that you have to consider and that is um okay personal story i suppose time i have uh, had to throw fire alarm companies contractors off stations um, for doing horrendous work and I have questioned the competence of the uh, fire alarm contractor and the individual installer and it was said to me that they were qualified to an equivalent of a level two so what's that that's like a part one or part two or an NVQ level two maybe um, it's definitely not a part two but that's basic fundamental training there really isn't it I mean what when you were employing fire alarm engineers what level of electrical competency did you train them on or were they just guys trained to run red fp200s clip them with p clips put them on little light duty tray a little bit of meccano and that was it so all of my guys that work for me first and foremost they were electricians other than one so every single right. one of them had done an apprenticeship or some some method in who you know is an electrician and they were managed underneath you know my my management you know and so yeah first and foremost they were electricians they understood the fundamental principles and had have evidence now the person who wasn't he come in on a project as a pair of helping hands to be honest a laborer helping with cabling getting stuff in mm -hmm. obviously not energizing anything now he actually turned out to be pretty handy Paul so I offered him um, employment and and put him on 
fire alarm training but what we also did was we i can't remember the name of the course now it's two evenings a week for um two years so he could do his basic electrical training now it was never to become an electrician but it's to give him the idea and understanding behind mains however he was never going to be running in uh, main circuits low voltage circuits testing them but he would he would assist and understand it but he was more for he ended up being a service engineer and a very very good one at that well it's the old time served isn't it when you've got the pragmatic approach of the hands-on teaching on site combined with good mentoring um, and also the formal equipment training I mean I know I know the very first electrician I ever worked with a guy called Chris I'll never forget him because he was brilliant and he had no qualifications whatsoever. Yeah. But he had time application. He could bend conduit, do trunking, size the trunking. He was dyslexic, bless him, and he couldn't do the exams. And he went to college. He learned it all, but he could never pass them. But, yeah, I couldn't judge him as not being an electrician. Or no, I know the industry would. But he was brilliant. And he taught me absolutely loads. Um, and it was just a shame that the industry sometimes doesn't well 20 odd years ago it didn't cater for that now obviously it, it, it does cater for a lot more um but just just going off on um i was talking about regulation 12 of eawr it's probably worthwhile because there's probably people screaming at this podcast going how dare you how dare you dare you um regulation 13 is precautions for work on equipment made dead so once you've made the isolations you have to take adequate precautions to prevent the equipment that's been made dead in order to prevent danger while work is carried out on or near that term on or near again you know and those precautions may involve lock-offs written procedures you know um and you then take it further and this is why i like the electricity work regs it's a very logical stepped process regulation 14 work on or near live conductors so if you've isolated um let's say you've opened a panel but You've isolated the circuits outgoing the panel, but the mains into it is still live. Technically, under Regulation 14, you're working on or near live conductors. Regulation 14 clearly states no person shall be engaged in any work activity on or near any live conductor other than one suitably covered with insulating material so as to prevent danger. Uh, unless it's unreasonable in all circumstances, there's no excuse really to not switch off the mains power. Um, and also, is it unreasonable in circumstances for him to be at work on or near when it's live? And then also suitable precautions, you know, your GSA your test probes, your, your rubber gauntlets, your rubber matting, your brown trousers, as I like to say. Um, the, the fact of the matter is, is isolation is and live working is a massive debate in our industry. I've always said um, the only time you work live when people say you can't work live. Yes, you can. You can work live because when you do an earth loop impedance test, you're working live. When you're doing PFC, PSC, ZE testing, you are working live. You're working on or near live conductors. Um, when you are doing isolation, proving the unit uh, live, dead, etc., you're working on or near, but you have suitable and sufficient measures, controls. When you have a fire alarm panel and a spark has basically just said, I ain't got time to, to do it, just, just open up the panel and isolate all the outgoing circuits, I've seen that happen many a time and I've walked up to fire and arm engineers and gone, you realize that panel's live. Now there's a lot of debate in the industry, as you rightly said about, you know, who should be doing what. And I think, um, I don't know if you've ever heard this before. Have you heard of the, the one meter rule? Yeah, I have. Yeah. So yeah, the one meter rule is, is, is it's kind of, everybody references it as uh, regulation 14, of the electricity at work regulations but um it's it's about the need for the conductor to be live the need for uninsulated and the need to take precautions to prevent injury but one of the things i really really like because it's actually the most explained of all the regulations um which is quite scary in itself but if you actually look right at the back of the electricity at work regulations in appendix three it's called workspace and access and it's a historical comment on old legislation, uh, the 1908 Electricity Act, actually. And in that regulation 17, it, it actually quotes it as um, uh, those constructed for low pressure um, have a clear height of seven foot or three foot. And it gives some old fashioned distances, which 
you should be stay, staying away from. Now, a lot of people have actually transposed that into um, a meter rule. Now, that's actually referenced in uh, BISRA uh, engineering documents for, uh, you know, safe yeah. clearances and walkways and stuff like that. But there is no... I think it depends on the employer as to what the safe working distance is. I personally think a meter is good. But if you have someone who isn't fully qualified to evoke an electrical isolation, then you're going to need to have a company process that mandates yeah. an electrician is going yeah. around doing the isolation so that people can work safely. And that's well, inside a lot of these panels, the way the low voltage comes in and is terminated usually has a some form of barrier or enclosure within the panel yeah um, however effectively well, you're the, double insulating it aren't you really you're yeah it very difficult to access well having having said that the the cable that's the live terminals but the actual quite often the cables will just be single insulated cables coming in yeah and that poses um some form of risk especially fp because the um insulation quite often it's quite soft yeah it's very soft it can it can be broken with a screwdriver quite easily um, and it's just what I'm worried about is just fire alarm engineers going into these panels without without awareness of the risk. You know, for me, um, where there is a a magnitude of fault current, I, I would uh, if I was running cables into a fire alarm panel. Again, I haven't been in one in years, but it might be a good idea that if manufacturers are listening, that they have a a, a non-conductive compartment where they can that goes around. The panel where the mains power cable has to terminate and can be protected all the way through to a double insulated terminal where a tool is needed to open that terminal to get to the insulated conductors where the cables are connected that would then uh, have a uh, allow people to work a lot safer if they had to work on or near however and people are screaming now i know they're screaming if it if it can be isolated, it will be isolated. But you and I both know, and I'm sure you've seen this, you go to a bank in London and you need to do some servicing on a fire alarm panel. And the first thing the facilities manager says to you is, we can't shut it off, mate. Yeah. Can't shut it off. So straight away, you're then sitting there judging, how do I not breach the legislation and the guidance in 5839? What would you, how would you approach that? Dan, what's your view on that? My view is pretty simple, is that anybody working on the LV side or, um, or, or near it, as we've discussed, needs to be trained suitably mm. to be able to work on it. Otherwise, they can't. I agree. I think that one of the first steps of mitigation is not just having a level two qualified fire alarm engineer. It's actually sending an electrician who is competent yeah, to and work on fire alarm systems because it, 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 it's quite it's quite simple. If we had a scenario here, let's say you send a fire alarm engineer who isn't electrically trained to work on low voltage systems to change a fire alarm panel. Now, bearing in mind, some might be very old. The way it's wired, you might often you'll have mains cables come in the panel and out to an isolator and back again. So they go through the panel. So you can't not isolate it you need some form of isolation i see it all the time obviously it's really poor practice but you're up against it so let's say someone who isn't competent to work on low voltage systems does something knocks something bashes an fp and it shorts out a bit of metal or something you know sparks fly as it does it, it trips um trips out something maybe it shouldn't do or, or whatever you know there could be multiple reasons somebody might get hurt we might have some sort of um, business operation impact by something tripping because not all fire alarms uh, meet standards where it should be a dedicated circuit and what have you i mean how where do you stand then if you was being sued for either injury to somebody or loss of business or something like that you need to be able to justify that you're doing things correctly. And if you're if you're not electrically trained to work on low voltage systems, you've got no defense at all. No, you don't. And 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 the trouble is, is and this is one thing that I think we're never not gonna repeat, is is the legislation that you will be prosecuted under uh, the law if you're standing in a court, there is no defense because that legislation is free. 
The Electricity of Work yeah. Regulations is a free-to-download document. There is no excuse and there is no defence. However, excuse me, um, under Regulation 29, which is the one that I have told every single person I've ever worked with to memorise, um, it is called defence. So, Mr Jackson, in any proceeding for an offence consisting of a contravention of Regulations 4, Safe System of Work, 5, 8, earthen, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. So that covers all the isolation working on or near. And 16, competence. So if you contravene the regulation for competence, it shall be a defence for any person, you, the electrician, the fire alarm engineer, to prove they took all reasonable steps and exercised all due diligence to avoid the commissioning of that offence. So if you're a fire alarm engineer and you've turned around, you're listening to this and going, do you know what, actually, I think I need more training. Then write to your boss and actually say to him, um, dear Mr. Jones, um, uh, I've been working here for X amount. I'm fairly confident on the panels, etc. However, I wish to develop my knowledge under electricity at work regulations. I would like to attend some training as I believe that my competence under regulation 16 needs to be developed further. My understanding of isolations needs to be developed further, and I believe that this will allow me not to contravene the defence clause. If you send that to your boss, your boss is going to be in the dock, not you, because you've taken all reasonable steps to tell him. And one of the defining merits of competence is the ability to understand uh, you know, the, your line of demarcation. I can't do that. It's the ability to say no. I, I'm quite happy to say I cannot work on or near a fire alarm system anymore because I'm not competent to. I used to be years ago. I'm not yeah. anymore and the technology's moved. So my defence regulation, I, if my boss said to me, go and do that fire alarm, I'd turn and say, I don't really know what to do and I can't be held accountable for it and it will probably break and you'll end up costing a lot more money. Um, and I'll put it in writing and that's my defence. And then if anything happens to me, my boss will then be pulled into a court and said, well, your guy told you he wasn't confident to work on it. What's your defence? He has none. And that's the thing, guys and girls, you can use this legislation to actually turn a corner, protect yourself, not cover your ass. That's a horrible term. But yeah. actually learn the legislation of the land that will keep you and your bosses out of prison. A good boss is the one who wants to stay out of prison. So, yeah, defence, it's, it's a very small regulation to learn. And in it, the note is brilliant because it says regulation 29 defence only applies in criminal proceedings. It provides a defence for a duty holder, which, Dan, you are a duty holder of a company, uh, who can establish that they took all reasonable steps and exercised all due diligence to avoid committing an offence. So, yeah, as I always say, if there's no earthing, if you haven't took steps to avoid committing an offence, um, then it's your neck on the line. It's the same with competency. If you send an unqualified person to work on a fire alarm, you are committing an offence. And it's very reasonable and foreseeable um, to not commit that offence and exercise due diligence by training and developing your guys. So for me, EAWR, it's an open shut case. However, the reason why there may be people going, yeah, yeah, whatever, mate, whatever, is because there's not enough people who've died, been injured yeah. or been to court. That's the truth. It's as simple as that. And I'm, I'm, as you know, I'm a former electrician, now chartered fellow at the IET. You're a fellow yourself. And I can tell you now, engineering judgment on this is very much open shut um, with the, the, the horrors of Grenfell on the eyes of the world on fire safety now. Um, I am sure that there are a lot of electrical and fire alarm contractors out there who are skating on very thin ice. Yeah. Yeah, well, th this this is the other... I mean, what we've just discussed is actually not really a problem for electricians. It's more fire alarm engineers um, because it's it's something that they, they, you know, they should be aware of. But other problems that electricians face... I get so many people come to me, Paul, who ask me really basic questions about um, detection, where it should go, and what have you. And they're working on fire alarm systems, but they You're don't joking. own the standards. They don't own BS5839 Part 1. They don't own the it costs a fortune. And it, it does. It does. I mean, there, there are ways to get it. There are packages, um, parts of, you know, trade bodies, if you're a, a member or... Uh, accredited you can get them uh, discounted but 
you know, to work on fire alarms, it is an extension, in my opinion, of basic electrical systems. And it's something that needs investment to understand, uh, you know, to become competent at. It's probably worthwhile noting at this point, if you're an ECA member, um, they actually give you a limited subscription to BSI online. I'm not, but I know they do it. Um, it's also worth noting that NAPIT also give you a subscription to a number of standards. Now, I, I'm a NAPIT corporate member at work. I can't remember if 5839 is, that is actually is that. Fee? Is there a fee for that, that subscription? Yeah, there is. It's actually okay. not that bad. The NAPIT one was 100 quid. Because, yeah, I used to be... Um... I used to be BAFE accredited yep. under the SSAOB used to carry our audits and they had the same scheme. It was a hundred pound a year and you got um, various, you know, fire safety documents and it was an absolute no brainer to pay that hundred pound. Well, I, I was kind of lucky as well. Cause when I worked for TFL, we had the mother of subscriptions to BSR online. And I mean, literally I bet, every yeah. single thing imaginable you could get a copy of, um, under the TFL license, it must have cost them millions for this wow. subscription because it didn't matter if it was bridges, civil engineering, electrical, mechanical, anything. It was great. It was it was a luxury to be honest with you to be able to get access like that. But I absolutely do not agree with the way that British standards and I know everyone who works with BSI who sits in these committees will hate me for saying this because there's some great people who do a lot of voluntary work. Um, the BSI is operated under a rule charter. They make an absolute fortune. Um, and yet, if I set up, right, let's say me and you tomorrow, Dan, which I know won't happen, but if me and you set up, Paul and Dan, Electrical and Fire Limited tomorrow, the amount of standards and guidance we would have to buy to do that, you're looking at about 100 standards, yeah. ranging from 100 to three to 400 pounds. Yeah. So we're laying out thousands of pounds before we've turned a screwdriver. Never mind buying a van, uniforms, setup costs, office rental, fuel, you know, time, uh, uh, your cash flow will be negative for age. If you're bankrupting yourself before you start. And then the worst thing is you can go out and buy all these and every six months they're being updated. Yeah, no. On a rotation. And, and we know there's loads of Facebook groups and social media groups that pass around these documents. I know they're idiots. Yeah, oh, I know. They, they're they should, just so stupid. Sending them to strangers, you know. But you can yeah. see why they do it. You can see why they do I, it. Do you know what? I can see why they do it. I don't do it. I don't agree with it because it's illegal. Um, but I absolutely, totally see why people do it. Um, because the, these standards were written years ago. And if all the people working on these committees are volunteers, where is the money going? And, and for me, I'm just going to go on a little BSI ramble here. Um, the BSI, the day after Brexit was voted for, they then made a statement that said, we will continue harmonising with the EU. So they evidently didn't get the memo from 17 plus million people that said we want out of the EU. And now they're still going to be harmonising all the British standards with all of the committees around Europe, regardless of whether, because obviously we're going through Brexit at this moment in time, whether there's a hard Brexit or a deal Brexit. So that just tells you straight away that they don't even listen to government. But because they operate under royal assent, they're not governed or regulated. They make a fortune. And mm. I genuinely don't know what they do to give back to those industries. I don't know what the BSI guys do for electrical, although I know the IET print it under license. So the IET technically for the Ryan rigs, but 5839, 5266 and all the other standards and you and I both know this loads because we know Mr. Skirm and he's like a walking encyclopedia of them, as is yeah. David Watts. Where does the money go? God knows. It'd be nice to go in my pocket. Do you know what I mean? But it, it wouldn't be great if it went back into the trades, developing and upskilling the competency so we didn't have the accident statistics, to changing the hearts and minds for a better outlook, to being fairer, to having more support systems in place. It, it, oh yeah, do you know what? I know I'm probably I'm overwhelming this conversation, but it is a bugbear <laughs> of mine. Sorry, mate. That's all good. It's all good. Um, and the the other thing I find with electricians working on fire alarms, they always come to me and they say, "What training course shall I do? What's best?" And there are 
a variety of courses out there. Um, you know, the FIA, you've got Searchall do some modules similar to what the FIA used to do. And then there's other organisations that might do, you know, a, a three-day course that will cover emergency lighting and fire alarms. And they always ask me, now don't get me wrong, I've only ever done the FIA courses. Yep. So my experience with them has always been pretty good. However, they have changed them. So they used to be modules and now it's a much broader um, spectrum of what you're supposed to be doing. Which Please is, don't tell me it's a multiple choice exam. Um, I think I think they all are. I think so. Oh, for um, God's sake. They, they literally all are. But it's, it is a – no matter what course you do, they are short. Um, Wouldn't it be good, though, if the if you were to qualify as a fire engineer, that like with the old 2400 or 2394, I think it is now, um, the design course, that you had to design a fire alarm system from scratch in a complex yeah. building that was given to you or – you had to do three designs in th three environments. So one would be a domestic 5839 part six. One would be a complex. One would be a non-complex design, which you had to do. Uh, and they were from a random pool. So everybody had different ones. So they couldn't copy and paste um, to really demonstrate competence. Because I did years ago, I did a um, 5266 um, emergency lighting course. It was three days. Wow. What a game changer. Yeah. Totally opened my eyes to. I, I don't. Yeah. I didn't know that you had to do an emergency line risk assessment. I didn't know about this. You know, put. You know, put it at, at points of emphasis and yeah. change its direction. Uh, you know, put an emergency light at a fire alarm panel because it's a point of emphasis. Um, in the corners of rooms, and we we always said why in the corners. Data yeah, yeah, yeah. All that, all of that stuff that nobody's ever really seen is in these standards, and then. It, I, I learned some basic rules and then you go out and nearly 20 years after that course, you realize that emergency lighting, just because it's one of my little pet things that I talk about and stuff, it, it, it's, it's just like this forgotten bastard in the industry. The, the emergency lighting definitely is. People just use like a rule of thumb. But even when we was at, we stayed in one of the budget hotels didn't we near um alex recently oh yeah we did and i was looking at the emergency lighting and the fire safety precautions there and the emergency lighting could really simply comply if it the light fitting was moved 500 mil from where it was in, in a in the right direction happy days however it's not and it's completely non-compliant and it's just pure lack of education it's just gone, oh, this is rule of thumb, this is what we do. And using emergency lights and, oh, we've got to have signs now, so we have these emergency lights here, so what we're going to do is whack some stickers over them so they're no longer emergency lights, you know? Yeah, I know. And then you've also got um, the glow-in-the-dark. What do they call it again? Is uh, it photoluminescent. Uh, photoluminescent signage, which um, people still use, but yet the ICEL Committee, International Committee for Emergency Lighting, they published a memo, a guidance note years ago, saying that they weren't fit for purpose. But yet they don't get pulled on fire risk assessments. I, I think what it is is, and I've said this before, but I'll say it on it. I think the the breaking up of the disciplines, the fragmenting and creating of silos, fire engineer, emergency lighting engineer, lighting designer, who does what? Because when I, I occasionally I do talks on emergency lighting and I always put a picture up. And I ask people, what's the issue? And then everybody looks blank. And then I put a, a, a flame, like a simulated fire. And then they go, oh, right, yeah, we get it. Yeah, where's the way out? And then I go, okay, but more importantly, who takes the lead on it? The fire engineer, the fire risk assessor, the lighting yeah. designer, or the emergency lighting engineer? Well, the, the, Very the difficult. Whole, well, this is the thing with um, what, what electricians need to really understand is that they need to read the regulatory reform order understand it indeed and work from it a lot again paul a lot of electricians come to me and i tell them this it's a free document you can go online it's free read it it's not a very big document mm. but it just states out the le legislation behind what you've got to do and it all comes down to risk assessment fire risk assessment it does and it's and fire engineering is, is quite a it's quite a common sense methodical approach if you look at so you're yeah. right the regulatory reform order in brackets fire safety of 2005 caused chaos 
because that integrated about two to three hundred pieces of fire legislation into one document and converted it from everywhere must have a fire certificate to, when I say everywhere, not everywhere, but places of public gatherings, cinemas, railway stations, to it's your risk. You own the risk. You manage the risk. You do your risk assessments. Now, there is not enough risk assessors in this country. Grenfell has evidently shown us there are massive flaws in fire engineering, fire products, fire safety, fire risk assessments, and the competence of all the above. And the fire reform order is a basic guide. However, it's worth noting on this, there is a a set of guidance notes. I don't know if you're aware, Dan, on the um, uh, government website. Yeah, yeah. And it's like places of congregation, like churches and stuff. And they're like 200 pages of really informative uh, knowledge. Because if you actually look at some of the standards that you would expect to see loads about emergency lighting, it's barely mentioned. So if, if you're working in fire alarms, you should understand what the regulatory reform order is. You should have an awareness that Part B of the building regulations deals with fire safety. Obviously, Part P if you're in domestic, but that's 5839 Part 6. And also BS9999, which is a great document. um, And that covers quite a lot of fire engineering safety principles. And if you can look at a logical narrative and some rules and principles in there, you can tie together a justification as to why you've done what you've done. Because everywhere is slightly different. If you use common rules of thumb, you can make mistakes. Points of emphasis are common rules of thumbs. Now, they're generally uh, accepted everywhere, but since 5266 has been rewritten, it's, and a, it's, it's getting more complex because people are saying, well, I, I, you know, on the railway, if my power fails or is a fire, I have to keep the power going. I have to have the lighting going. Why? Because my control centers, you know, are fireproof, fire rated, but there might be something outside and there needs to be a fire protected route of escape while we keep the place operational and, do you know what I mean? So it's really are a lot of places where if there is a worst case scenario, stuff still needs to work. Yeah. Um, so not not every place is the same anymore. And I think there's a lot of legacy equipment out there that's just not being maintained. Dare I say it? I, every time I go into a high rise building, I always stop at the entrance and look at the repeater panel and just think, how many amber lights do I see? Do I see any red? And virtually yeah. every time. Every time, mate, something's in silence because there's a fault somewhere. Yeah. You have to wonder why, though, on fire alarm. Is it just that the FP200 breaks down? Because you, you, I've wired loads of fire alarms on pyro. and you know, Take you 25 years before you got a fault on any of it. I've got to say, I mean, technology is becoming more and more prevalent within, you know, life safety systems. And I do find, as time's gone on, you are more likely to have um, faulty equipment and or firearm panels are more sensitive to what is on the end of it. Now, some stuff might not mean that it, it doesn't conform, it's not working. Mm. However, again, I think management of firearm systems and fire, system, well, fire safety in general is quite poor. The attitude towards it is quite poor. Well, it's. I think, I think with fire safety, one of the things I've been campaigning for uh, for quite some time is is a lot of people many years ago would argue you don't need fire alarms anymore because it's all risk-based well if that's the case believe it or not in the regulatory reform order fire safety there is also a defense clause and it is literally almost word for word the same as the electricity at work regulation yeah. and in in the regulatory reform order it, it mentions having the like terms like suitable and sufficient controls measures compartmentation detection possible suppression so you know if you're going into a building as a fire alarm engineer you see holes in the walls your duty of care is to report that because that could be breaching a fire compartment you know um, fire systems are designed to protect and minimize damage and more importantly the first rule is to protect people yeah and aid safe early evacuation before you know that's what it's about and um, I think fire systems over the years they're not maintained well it'll cost you more in the long run won't it really it it does but but also i think um what would massively help a lot of people working whether you're managing fire safety systems or working on fire safety systems is actually learning about fire behaviors so Mm, okay 
because once you understand how fire works a little bit more it really does um it's like you learn the dangers of electricity but you need to know the dangers of fire and i know we all know it but how it how it operates in a certain way but then it's like it makes you understand why you put a detector where you put it if you speak to the manufacturers also you go down to their their um, plants wherever they are their warehouses mm-hmm. they can show you tests they can show you stuff it really helps you understand it more and it helps you install design maintain in a in a more suitable manner because you understand fire and its behaviors and how and the effects of what can happen yeah i mean i i can tell you a story now um i worked on a, a brand new build railway station that will, will not be named and I went into it. It was a construction site. And the first question asked was, well, where's was the fire detection system? I went onto a railway station and it was there was no fire alarm panel. So naturally, I asked the question and they were told, I was told, no, no, don't worry about it. There's nowhere where a fire can develop undetected. Well, yes, there was. There were plant rooms that were, you know, enclosed and... There was no, you, you know, how, how are you going to, you going to put a human being in there watching constantly? Of course there was. So it turned out that when I actually did some research that the company policy for the people building it was if we put our staff in there, there must be fire alarms. But if the operator staff are in there, well, that's down to them. Right. And it was a really interesting debate because I was, I was having some massive debates with the builders at the time and the designers and they were like, well, if you want fire alarm, fine, there's no problem, but you're putting it in at your cost. And we were like, hang on a minute, you're building a station for us to use, and yet you're telling us it's down to us to put the fire alarms in, which, you know, it's generally annoys you when they're already building it. So well, what it, we, it begs to the question, what about their insurance? Well, it also begs to the question that their own standards, uh, their own fire manual said that if you put our staff in there that we will have to have fire detection systems in. So it was one rule for one, one rule for another. Mm. So I thought I need to understand fire more. So I went and actually, while I was on this job, I trained, I developed and upskilled myself by doing the Nibosh uh, certificate. And I was so obsessed with getting the answers that I actually got a distinction. First ever course I ever got a distinction in. And I learned loads and I used the course to sound off my knowledge with the competent persons teaching it. And lo and behold, I wasn't wrong. I did my engineering research. I looked at railway standards, international standards, British standards. And it turned out that the root cause of it was the fire engineer did a risk assessment based on drawings, architectural drawings, right? not construction drawings. And he also done a risk assessment on the drawing. Now, fire risk assessments are only ever done on existing buildings. Yeah. If you're designing something, you employ a fire engineer to apply BS 999 or Part B. You choose which one you apply and apply fire engineering principles, which would mean you must escape, um, you know, you've certain distance to escape routes in certain times and all that. So they'll apply all those principles and define compartmentation and whether there's a need for detection in public areas or or non-public areas. They hadn't done it. They value engineered the fire safety out. So it basically turned out that they'd done a fire risk assessment. They value engineered the job. The risk assessment was basically to silence us. And um, unfortunately, it came to my desk and I refused it, which then caused a bit of conflict. And luckily, we um, presented our case in an objective and logical manner, as any engineer should, rather than ranting and raving. And um, the builders acknowledged it. And to save face, they gave us a pot of money and said, can you please install the fire alarms? So we did. Yeah. Which was good. But it should never have got to that. And that's the scary thing. That's the the thing that really is quite frustrating. It should never, ever get to those levels. But sometimes it does. And this is why the construction industry is very fickle, because, you know, people value engineer or they cut corners, they may not know they're cutting corners. Um, and it all costs and it all impacts people. And sadly, building services is the last in the door. You know, it suffers from descopes the most. Fire safety generally is untouched, hopefully on the alarms and stuff. But um, when you get down to emergency lighting, it's the scraps, isn't it really? So 
these things can happen but just remember the legislation is there to protect you and keep you out of prison and as a minimum cover your backside put it in writing absolutely and i i think it's really important to make sure that fire safety is coordinated correctly in any project whether it's small or large and that again has its challenges because it's the first thing mate it's the first thing you should be i've always said on on rail there are two areas of building services that must be in the early stages or what is known as grip three in rail fire safety and earthing and bonding because of the complexities with the high, high voltage lines and emc but absolutely when you're developing a scheme whether it be a tower block fire safety drives the civils you know if you're doing fire safety on a brand new build say it's a new westfield the fire engineer is going to model the volume and capacity of that building that's been developed by the architect and validate whether or not they can evacuate people safely that may end up and i've been on jobs where we've had to change the openings of buildings to make them from four meters to six meters so that you can evacuate platforms or areas in six minutes or four minutes, depending on which yeah. piece of legislation you pull from. So if you do not get fire safety right at the start of the job, you will pay for it tenfold at the end of the job. And I have seen lots of projects in my career where they haven't done it and it's cost a bomb. So, yeah, there's lots of legislation to be considered. Right, we've been going on quite a lot. And to be honest, Paul, I could talk to you for hours, mate, about this sort of stuff. We could do the world's first ever 24-hour podcast on one topic. Literally, I can talk about fire safety. When when I, I meet people, they're always like, what's your passion? I, talk, I say electrical and fire safety. <laughs> and it's something I can just keep going on and on about. So anyway, thank you for everybody for listening. As ever, if you've got any questions about any of this stuff or want us to talk about more topics within fire safety by all means let us know and we we can have a podcast we can get people in um which we, we know people between us don't we paul we do many many people how do you end the podcast um thank you very much for listening and we'll see you on the next one thank you very much for listening and we'll see you on the next one Bye bye